we still don't know for age appropriate, size appropriate individuals, how do we periodize this program? Because if you just do the same balls, the same program over and over again, and you expect volume to give you greater velocity, I think you're mistaken because it's intent to be explosive. If you read some research by Digby Sale, for example, the neurologic system, your brain, which is your central nervous system in your spine, has peripheral nerves that go to your arms and your legs. The intent to tell yourself, I want to be explosive, is going to be as important, if not more important, than the actual movement or execution itself. And so the combination of the neuromuscular system coming together is of the utmost importance. Hey, this is More Than Velocity. I'm Bart Pear here with Ryan Croton and Jordan Oseguera. And today we've got a special guest, which I think you're going to like. It's Dr. David Szymanski. He is the um, director of baseball performance and the director chair over at Louisiana Tech. Uh, has been there uh, a little while um, doing a number of things. And, and Ryan actually knows him because he's um, also involved over at Louisiana Tech. And so what I'm going to do is let Ryan... Um, further introduce David and uh, kind of explain how they know each other and what they've been doing. And then we'll just, uh, we'll see where this goes. Yeah. So, I mean, working over at Louisiana tech is amazing. I, I had this rare opportunity um, when I left major league baseball to get involved with research and uh, David and I had chatted for quite a while uh, in between things. And I just learned that there's, there's such a comprehensive approach to baseball performance science there. And for people who, you know, are unaware of Dr. David Zemanski, he's done a tremendous amount of research as it relates to baseball performance. And, you know, he's been really a leader on intersecting strength training and um, performance-based outcomes such as swing velocities, you know, we're looking at throwing velocities and there's a whole host of information available. Um, I would like actually, uh, David, if you could go through, you know, what's offered at Louisiana Tech because I, I believe this lab, what we're doing is going to be on the forefront of baseball science and, and people have to understand that there's so many components to this. So you want me to address the graduate program? In particular? Yeah, please. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. So at Louisiana Tech University, we have a master's of science degree in kinesiology. And you have two options. One is exercise or sport and exercise psychology, which is brand new and starting this fall. And then the other is sports performance. So the sports performance area is the area that I particularly am going to be involved in as a faculty member and as a researcher. And a student who comes into that particular area usually wants to do something that is gonna be related to being a sport coach, maybe being a strength and conditioning person, potentially athletic training, but it really also can lead into a doctoral program. So we have a number of students that have come through our program that have gone into the professional world of strength and conditioning in baseball. But we've also had now a number of students most recently going through and doing their starting their PhD programs in biomechanics or exercise science at other universities around the country. And then they're really just going to try to work with some people who are faculty members at those respective schools that have an expertise in the area that they really want to become more advanced in. So it's, it's really, over the 17 years that I've been here, it's really evolved quite nicely. And students can come here and find that they have an opportunity to work hands-on with athletes if that's what they desire. They have the ability to do research. 
they have the ability then to also get that academic background. So for me, they're getting, you know, three for the price of one, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just going to kind of go on a little bit of, of what's been going on there. So we had two students, they both got onto their PhD program. So I've, I've, I've been advising a couple students, but these uh, particular guys, they did some heavy research into lower body uh, aspects in terms of ground reaction force and jump properties and pitching performance. And uh, we just had a guy on named Chris Bishop, who is like one of the leaders in force plate analysis and uh, asymmetries. And, you know, one of the cool things that we found from this research, and I think it would be interesting for a lot of the major league baseball community and college who have these platforms that they can assess is that um, the athletes that were more single leg dominant. So what we did is we evaluated jumps on one leg. We evaluated jumps on, you know, bilaterally. And most, and just as an aside in baseball, most people assess a counter movement jump with two legs and one force plate. And we had two force plates. And we also looked at a single leg, but we found the pitchers who are more single leg dominant, they seem to have thrown harder. And this kind of, you know, concept from this research really can shape the training because I think still in baseball and I, you know, I'm sure Dr. Zemanski over the years has probably adjusted training, but there needs to be a combination of both the bilateral strength for athletes and as well as unilateral, a single leg strength. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just interesting to watch because this gives us now a new framework to assess our training programs. We're new, we're doing a lot with arm care uh, for the throwing arm, but this, this is an exciting piece for the lower body. So, you know, that was just one of the things that I really enjoy from, from the research I've been a part of. And I think that's a really good point because if you're going to train an athlete and then particularly a baseball or maybe even a softball athlete for that matter, they are doing lots of things on two and then one leg in the individual or independent of one another. And so yeah, I think you having a well-balanced resistance training program would be a really wise selection. At times in my past, I've heard of some people doing a lot of pushing and it's, you know, two arms, two leg pushing movements, and they might be in the sagittal plane or straight ahead. And I think it's really important to think about every plane. So the sagittal plane, the frontal plane, the transverse plane, and a diagonal plane, and then doing double leg or or, or single leg movements, I think is really important. And then going you know, either forward or backward in the sagittal plane, going side to side in this frontal plane with lateral lunges or lateral squats, for example. But then there's other people like in, in the book that we had most recently put together called Strength Training in Baseball, there were individuals who were recommending lateral lunges with a plate extension. So now you're taking the plate and going away from your body. So when you throw a baseball, the arm extends away from the body. And it might be nice to have something, uh, an exercise that might do that. So it works on their balance, their stability, their core stability, and then upper body, lower body simultaneously. And then you can put in a rotation of that and try to mimic the action or somewhat of the action while they might be the pattern while they throw or a step up or, you know, split squats. And then making sure that you integrate things that are explosive, because as we did all this vertical jumping, those that jump really high at times are the ones who are throwing with greater velocity. But again, that's for our division one collegiate baseball team. Right now, I'm not going to say it's going to be the same for everyone, but I think it's really interesting that when you 
try to design a program, make sure it is well balanced as possible in the planes, single leg and double leg and single arm and double arm movements that really worked anterior, the front side and posterior, the back side of the body. And uh, if you do that and you, you take care of the arm and you take care of the uh, torso or the abs, obliques, low back with whether it's traditional exercises in that area, breathing exercises that work on that, the pillar bridge stability movements, which is uh, things that people are doing more of these days, and then medicine ball exercises. There's really a, a lot of things you can do in the collegiate world when you only have 60 minutes or so to train athletes because of NCA regulations. You really got to be mindful about how you put it all together and organize it. So for me, I do things that are called complex training. So I use an upper body movement, and then we're doing some forearm work in between those sets. And then, for example, when we get to our lower body, they might be doing some plyometric movements as the program progresses. They don't initially start with all that. I layer it or try to add things as they get accustomed to doing these things so that while they're playing and doing the training, it hopefully is a gradual progression that gets me to where we want to be and that it doesn't overtrain them. That's the thing that I'm always concerned about is overtraining somebody. Yeah, real, real quick on that. Uh, sorry if my voice goes out. Uh, Bart was yelling at me earlier, so I was trying to defend myself on some things. That's I'm just joking. But, um, uh, you know, we, we mentioned on here a lot, frontal, sagittal, and transverse. And I think that can get a little overwhelming for guys that are listening. Uh, we do have some guys that are listening that are, you know, still in high school or parents of players that are, list, that are listening who are their, their players are still in high school if you don't mind going a little more in depth of frontal, sagittal, and transverse, because pitching happens in all those planes. And, and I think you nailed it perfect in saying that every once in a while, one part of the body is moving in one plane while the other is moving in the, in the other. So sometimes we have multi, multi-planar movements, if that's even a word, I don't know, mm-hmm. um, going on at the same time. So if you can go a little more in depth on that, I think that'd be awesome for the people listening in. Yeah. So the sagittal plane splits your body here and, uh, between right and left side and a traditional back squat, for example, would be a movement that works in the sagittal plane. The frontal plane divides your front side or anterior part and your posterior part of your body. So that now a lateral lunge going to your right and your left would be a functional exercise in that uh, particular plane. Transverse plane is going side to side as you rotate. So everything in baseball has rotation. And then there's also a diagonal plane. So you're actually moving from one side to the other as you might take your arm from maybe 11 o'clock position and follow through and go down to a uh, six o'clock position or something of that nature. So across the body. And as you have exercises for the high school athlete in particular, I've always been of the mindset that using the KISS principle is a good thing. Keep it simple. And I'll say silly, right? Because sometimes we'll use a different word. But (laughs) keep it simple. So having a back squat and maybe a deadlift and uh, uh, a back squat, those type of exercise. So bench, deadlifts, and squat, like a weight, like a powerlifting type of program. I've heard of that, and I know that people use bigger, faster, stronger programs, for example. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I think it's a foundation that young high school kids could definitely implement. Because in my experience with the research that we've done in years past with high school athletes who are averaging 15.4 years of age from their freshman to their senior year, if you just get those individuals stronger with upper body and lower body exercises over the course of 12 weeks, I found in my research, whether it was in Columbus, Georgia, whether it was Auburn, Alabama, um, 
Ruston, Louisiana, we did three different studies in three different states over the course of my career. And all of these high school kids increase their bat speed and can increase their throwing velocity just from increasing their strength. Mm -hmm. Because in general, they're not very strong and they haven't had a consistent program. However, when they become more physically mature, I think you have to add layers to that and make it more complex. And so the KISS principle can then move to another acronym that you could potentially use where you have to make it specific and complex. And so I just call that MISC and I've never, M-I-S-C, make it specific and complex. So I made that up. I've never published it. So if someone wants to steal it, I guess they can. But anyway, my I'm writing is, it down so I can steal it. Yeah. So <laughs> the idea here is definitely do some of these traditional foundational exercises, but then you've got to continue to build on it because you want to get an athlete from freshman to senior year in college strong. So in my experience of training college baseball players for the last 17 years, freshmen and junior college players, I see the greatest increases in their strength in their first two years because they probably weren't doing something to the, the depth of what I had been, that I do with them. But then the juniors and seniors that have been at Louisiana Tech, for example, that have been with me from a freshman and sophomore year, they see smaller increments in their weight training uh, strengths, like maximal strengths. And I've had some people reach out to me most recently asking about maximal 1RMs. And my response is, I want an athlete to be functionally strong. That means as strong as they need to be in order to play the game of baseball. To get stronger, such as a back squat that goes from 525 pounds to 550 pounds, some might argue that they definitely want to see that because some might say in the strength and conditioning world that you never have enough strength. And I don't disagree with that per se, but I just think that if you take it so far and potentially really push that athlete, and if the unfortunate occurrence happens where they actually get hurt from doing a maximal lift that they really may not be necessary, then what is the risk to benefit ratio? If it's too risky, then I might say, I'm not going to do it. And I want to make sure it's more beneficial for them. But, you know, I still think one RMs are good, but you certainly can do submaximal uh, one R, or, you know, submaximal one RM, excuse me, submaximal repetition max lifts because you can estimate one RM. But the further you go away from one, the less it's going to estimate it accurately. Mm -hmm. So someone emailed me today and I responded to it saying, I wouldn't do things that are over five per se, because when you get to six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 repetitions for a max, it might be more challenging to really estimate what their one is. If you're going to use those, because not everybody uses it. Uh, I, I've just <laughs> done it because I think it's real important for me to tell an athlete, how much do I want you to put on the bar for a back squat or a bench press or a row, for example. And in my career, what I've found to be true is that athletes oftentimes underestimate their strengths or they don't want to do it because they're playing and they don't want to push themselves or whatever their mindset is. And so now they will choose weight that is actually lower than the percentages I would like. And if I want to stay in what I'm going to consider maximum strength percentages or power percentages, they're either single or maximal efforts. I want to be able to tell them exactly what they're going to do. And this is how our program progresses from week one, two, three, and four, as I use what's called a four week summated microcycle. And that really means week one, relatively speaking, for those who are interested, low, then the second week is going to go to a uh, moderate and then to a high intensity and then it's going to come down to a download or what's come un unloading and 
in the research, they call it a restitution period. So basically it's like the stock market, one, two, three, and then come back down. Then one, two, three, and then come back down. And the research has demonstrated that four week cycles really benefit the human body to make progressions. And that's why I use that type of periodization model. And in my classes, for example, at the graduate level, we actually learn all about this. And then they have to design their own programs as they are gonna select a team or male or females in high school, college, or pro athlete. And then they have to design a program based off of the different scenarios or periodization models that I teach. And then they have to make sure that they've done that uh, in a very thorough manner to, to make sure they understand all that they're putting together. Because it's not just, hey, this is the way I'm gonna do it. I want them to learn how to do other people's philosophies. And then they can choose when they're done, hey, this is the facility I have. Here's the equipment I have. Here's the athletes I have. And then here's my off season, my preseason or my in season. And now how am I going to design that program based on what you have? Real, real quick on that. Cause there's a lot of great things. And number one, and I've told this to Ryan, I don't believe I've ever told this to, uh, to, to David. <clears throat> I've had some great chances to speak with him, but that right there, if that's your strength coach and you're, and you're the pitching coach, you got to go. I know my guys are in good hands because he's actually diving into information to figure out what's going to be the best for these, these, Oh, you know, high loads, low loads. You guys know the words better than I do. But if I had that as a manager, a pitching coach, a hitting coach, whatever skills position I'm working with, and that's my strength coach, that's 25% of my day. I don't need to worry about anymore. I can focus on things that are, that I don't need to worry about. I know that communication's there and that's awesome. Um, and I already lost my train of thought on the other thing. Uh, but the other thing I want to talk about is you talk about, you know, there's, there's a lot of information just put in there. And earlier in the conversation, you said you need a well-balanced um, training trajectory. And what I've seen is, in, in, you know, I think your, your, your MISC and KISS principles are awesome. And what I've noticed is that the, I think it's too young, but the, the pendulum always swings. And there's never kind of that settling in the middle that it used to be heavy back squat, deadlift. And now everyone realizes, oh, we want to work that rotational aspect. So they're taking all these medicine ball throws and they're taking a 10-year-old and they're overloading on the medicine ball throws when they're neglecting the rest of it. Is this something you see is a common occurrence throughout all of baseball? Or is that just kind of something that, that I've just, is it just only on the Instagram world that I'm, I'm, that I'm running into this? I guess my first response is I hope it's just on the Instagram one. And I yeah. hope people are really doing a nice job of, really thinking about how they're going to put together a program. Because I think if you throw everything in there when they begin, that's going to be too much for mm -hmm. any individual, whether they're high school, college, or even the pro athlete, because they're just not ready for that volume of work. So to me, again, you should be thinking about how I'm going to layer these things and progressively integrate them into the program so that eventually when I want them to do the medicine ball work or the plyometric movement, or the complex training that I do is they're doing a resistance training movement followed by a plyometric movement, then they're ready for it. And for young people, if they don't have a good foundation of strength, then throwing anything ballistically, which means throwing it violently, and it's too heavy for them potentially, then that becomes something that's important to recognize. Because when we see maybe Instagram or information that's out there about these programs, they might see somebody throwing a specific mass or weighted med ball that might not be appropriate for the individual based on their size or stature. And for me, I use another thing. More is not always better. Sometimes more is less and less is more. So if we do less 
of what we think we want to do, but we do it really well and we focus on it so that they learn how to move effectively and efficiently and they functionally get stronger. Then as we keep adding more to their plate, then they'll be able to handle it. So the med ball programs, I mean, you have various weighted balls programs that are single ball programs and you have, we'll say larger medicine balls that you might do with two hands or might be whole body throws or rotational movements that throw or rotational movements that they don't throw. Again, you got to think about how you're going to integrate those because I don't throw medicine balls every day. I might have a day where they are throwing med balls, but there's a day that's a non-throwing med ball because maybe they actually threw for pitchers, for example, through a bullpen that day. And maybe they're going to have a day of rest so that maybe they are not going to use their arms because they are going to have to somehow go from whatever that day was that they pitched. So I like to think of pitching as day one. And then you have a number of days before they pitch again in the off season. Usually they're on like a five day rotation because they're throwing 30 to 45 pitch bullpens or inner squad games. But then when they get to the end season, at least collegiately, they might throw every Friday or every Saturday or every Sunday as a starter for division one baseball team. So now you have seven days in which to have a, a window where they're doing their tapering, which means you're going to go from higher intensities to lower intensities to maybe rest day before they potentially pitch again. What are you going to do on those respective days? And if you plan them appropriately and you work with the athlete, because the athletes also going to either like most or all of what you do, but they might also want to do something else that maybe that you're not doing or introducing. So to give them some freedom and say, here are the exercises and maybe, and, and here, for example, just last year, I created what I call the cheesecake factory menu. I had, here are my major exercise body parts that I want you to address. And then here is the plethora of pinatas. I say, Hefe, it's, I talk about some movies. Great movie reference. Yep. So, Ryan's got no idea what you're talking about. I had about. no clue. <laughs> the three amigos, the three amigos, <laughs> and, uh, the one gentleman is saying, hey, do you think I have a plethora of pinatas? He's like, well, Hefe, I think you have a plethora of pinatas. Well, it means a lot. The word plethora yeah, means a lot. You need to go watch that movie, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Steve Martin, Martin Short, uh, and uh, Chevy Chase. Those are the three guys. Anyway, I want to make sure that they have some choices. So hey, maybe on a respective day, they feel like they can do whatever that hard day may be. But if they want a moderate day or a light day or to a certain respect, if I can uh, modify that for them based on how they feel, then I can actually do that as well. And then there's actually a sheet that I have that I use from another research study that basically has a smiling, happy face baseball all the way down to a frowning face baseball. And it basically goes from, I feel great, a 10, to I feel terrible, which is a one. And so now if I ask them how they're doing, they can give me some feedback and then I can make that adjustment if I need to in season. Now, off-season, I'm not always as inclined to make those adjustments because we're in off-season and I need you to work, relatively speaking, moderate to hard. And I need you to make sure that you're trying to get as strong and then as powerful as you can before we transition to the preseason program, which could be for college athletes, January, February, or about that six-week window period of time before the collegiate baseball season starts in the third week of February. Yeah, you, you touched on something that was great. I mean, the, the way it's laid out is, is perfect. But, you know, we talked about this med ball and, and strength continuum. And I just I've been sitting on this because I just posted something. I don't know if, you know, you saw David or Jordan um, on LinkedIn, a study that was done in 1994 that took these developing baseball players and they put one group as a control. They weren't doing any training. Another group that was med ball only. 
and then another group that was focused on improving their 6RM bench press. And the only group in these developing athletes to advance their velocity was the bench press group. And so what it, what it tells me is that you're, you're hitting, you know, right on the head that every athlete in their developmental stages, they need to have some concept of strength. So typically on the lower end, and this is why I think about your players, you know, you're talking about these minimized gains as they get older in your program at the beginning, they need a, a big strength focus, actually doing slower, heavier work promotes this advancement in velocity. But as they start to gain to a level that they have their maximum strength, um, their returns are less. So they need to focus on velocity. Right. And, and that's kind of the interesting continuum. We saw that too, uh, Jordan, it, with the Angels. I mean, we had some, we had a pitcher, um, I guess I could say his name, Jeremy Rhodes, th this athlete, because I'm only going to talk positively about him. He's a great person, but he should have been in the NFL or played third base. He, he this, lifted pretty close to what I would do. Yeah, he, he lifted four times of you on his back. I mean, this this guy was pound for pound, one of the best athletes I've ever been around. He's 236 pounds. He could squat 600 easy, like a ping pong ball. He could front squat like 450. I mean, he was just a monster. Could jump 40 inches. You know, he was just explosive and he was a pitcher, but he had velocity issues. Um, we actually had to put him in a velocity enhancement program, didn't we, Jordan? A guy yeah. that powerful, right? He has all these, these qualities that are super strong, tremendous strength athlete, like competitive power lifter type of um, pedigree. And um, we changed his program. So from going from 80% above in his program, 80% of his, you know, estimated max strength and above, we then made him a program that was 70% below. All his training was light and fast and this particular athlete then made a huge shift i think he was getting up to 95 to 97 when he, yeah, was he started getting into that mid eight mid mid 90s range not mid 80s yeah and so, his slider velocity really i think he was throwing some sliders every once in a while at you know 92 93 which is you know really good for a slider with with his specific movement characteristics which is a podcast for another day obviously we, yeah, in, in seeing the, the data that we had on pitchers, once a pitcher could front squat, we front squatted a lot, um, 265, 265 pounds. We saw that there was, little, there was little gain after that. When a pitcher could handle improving their strength to 265 pounds as an estimated max, they, working on velocity made more sense. The plyometric component, and I know, you know, some of the things that we uh, had looked at with the Angels that we're also looking at at Louisiana Tech is power, jump power. So jump power is the intersection of um, jump height and, and mass that can be calculated. But it's also from a force plate, the intersection of force that's produced by the athlete into the ground and their jumping velocity. And, um, you know, a lot of these guys that also are big dudes you know, if you can improve a bigger body to jump higher is great. You know, you do need the training to gain mass, but we also have to be able to evaluate how functional that mass is because if their mass gains are reducing their jump height, that's going to impact power. And um, even our velocity enhancement program, I think most of the guys that were successful, they were improving their jump. <clears throat> power. 
And so, you know, people who are out there that are running high velocity uh, weighted ball training programs and they have access to a weight like a jump mat, something that they can measure jump height or vertex, you know, there are calculations. We use the Sayers formula that you can utilize to determine jump power and advancing jump power during these weighted ball programs can really make a huge improvement. I remember all the guys that went into these weighted ball programs. We had a, we had a group one year. These guys were donkeys. They were huge, big, big dudes. All of them easily over 225 pounds. They're big guys. But when they improved their jump, there was a real big emphasis on improving the plyometric component of their training. That also, I think, influenced their velocity gains and the sustainable velocity in the season. I mean, Jordan, you can kind of talk about you know, what happens to certain guys, people think that velocity enhancement programs work for everybody. Yeah. And that's, man, I, you know, I thought I was going to go a day without a rant, you know, Bart, I'm sorry. Um, But for me, you know, everyone looks at it as these magic pills that you, you get better and you, you, for me, I, I, I view most traditional weight of ball programs as showcase programs. They're great if you need to go perform for like a weekend or maybe two weeks, but most guys after that start losing they, that. What is it? What is it you guys use in strength decay? The re, yeah, the, residual, the, the residuals go the, down. Yeah. The residuals go down. So that way I sound smart, but you start losing that. And again, we've talked about it before because you're building range of motion and you're keeping your strength the same. So you're getting that more time to get into layback and you're increasing your ability to throw hard. But if you don't have the strength, in those ranges to actually support what you're doing, it's not going to happen. And then even if you are building that strength, but you're relying fully on your arm to throw and not your explosive ability, you mentioned Sayers power. And again, that's a podcast for another day all in itself. But if you don't maintain your jump power, your ability to get springy, as I call it, I don't, again, I'm not a strength guy. I just say, you got to be springy. I I know what I'm looking for. You guys know the numbers of it, but I like my guys to be springy because they're not only going to throw harder, but they're going to throw harder for a season. And then guess what? They're going to throw harder the next season and they're going to throw harder the season after that. And those are your guys that start, you know, April 9th in the minor leagues or whenever they started the season all the way through September one, those are the guys that number one, stay healthy. Number two, they go to post every day. And number three, they compete at a regular, regular clip. You know what you're going to get. They may fluctuate from outing to outing, but you know what you're going to get out of those guys. And that's my biggest complaint is so many of these standard way to ball programs, just get in there and you throw a thousand throws or a hundred throws. I'm exaggerating obviously, but a hundred is not an exaggeration of these different way to balls. Everyone gets excited because someone threw, you know, a 0.3 ounce baseball, 107, everyone's doing backflips and somersaults. And then three months later, the guy's throwing 84 in a game and he's released. It's like, great. What did we really accomplish there? Other than we extended this guy's life for a month and a half. We didn't solve the problem. We put a Band-Aid over what the issue is. And then that Band-Aid bled out because it's a hemorrhage. And then we're, we're confused as to why the performance didn't get better. Um, I could probably rant a lot longer on that. I don't know if I went fully the direction you wanted me to go. But you need your players to be springy. Long story short, not just you know, in, increasing that range of motion. Yeah, well, I, I just want to jump on this and give some biomechanical context. You know, whenever there's an opportunity for science, I'd like to talk about it. But Springy wasn't good enough? Springy is good. When 
when pitchers are throwing at high velocity, and we found this at Louisiana Tech, okay, we, we saw this. We, we just looked, we divided, you know, our, our slower throwers from our faster throwers and looked at all these different jump characteristics. You know, jump power, essential. Not relative jump power, but absolute. This means it takes into account your body weight, not relative to your body weight. Um, that's, that's huge. But, you know, certain things that are important are linear momentum. You know, that comes from lower body power. The, the faster throwing athletes, they, they had two things. They push themselves forward at a, at a higher velocity. Their masses move faster, which, which is related to this jump power, I believe. <coughs> and they rotated faster as well, which I think has an effect of the jump power. But in other studies that I've seen for the lead knee, people don't realize how rapid that lead knee is in a pitcher. Guys that throw hard, that knee extends at like 400 degrees per second. I, I think you just had some research come out on that, right? It's, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a, a high velocity component to that lead knee. That's, that's your brace. And that's the, that's the huge transfer. That's like the, the final stage when, when guys are getting into ball release. You'll see some players, and you've probably seen it, Jordan, that they synchronize elbow extension and knee extension together. Yeah. You know, you and that's, you know, on the biomechanics aspect of it, that's one of the things that I always said, I want to keep this guy around. You know, we had a couple guys with, uh, you know, a couple examples would be, you know, the Keenan Middletons, the Jake Jules, the Justin Andersons, that when we had them in high A, they were throwing 88, 92. And they were on the, on the block of guys that, you know, let's give them another year. Let's see what happens. And I said, stick with these guys. They're all going to throw hundred miles an hour. They're big dudes, but what they did was they mistimed that lead knee brace. And we didn't get them in a way to ball program. We didn't need to. All we had to do was time up the biomechanics of it. Already donkeys, really strong guys. All you have to do is Google those guys and you go, those are large humans. They're, they're put together well. And we timed up that lead knee to where if you can, people watch it when it locks out. And uh, we got that timed up with, you know, I, David did a great job of, of talking about what the torso is doing as well. We timed the lead knee with the torso, time those up, boom. And then they start throwing seven, eight, nine miles an hour harder. All three of those guys get to the big leagues from players that it was like, Hey, you know, baseball America wrote an article at one point on Jake Jewell about how he was the biggest busted draft pick ever, ever chosen. He got to the big leagues. He's pitched there with two or three teams now. So it's one of those things like timing up those biomechanics of those violent movements is a good thing. Yeah, the coordination. I mean, that's that's important. I mean, this is kind of a discussion that we're having all together. Imagine we are all on the same team. You well, know, I want to hear you, David's take on all this. Well, cool. one of the things I wanted to mention about weighted ball programs is that oftentimes they're not progressed. So when we talk about resistance training, we're going, whether it's back squat, whatever exercise you select, it should gradually have, again, some type of elevation of the percentages and then lowering. So again, this type of cycle where it's almost like the stock market, where you're eventually going to get someone to a peak. Well, with medicine balls or the weighted ball programs that are single programs, we currently don't know what is too much. Well, there, well, there recently has been some evidence coming out, but we still don't know for age appropriate, size appropriate individuals, how do we periodize this program? Because if you just do the same balls, the same program, over and over again, and you expect volume to give you greater velocity, I think you're mistaken because it's meant to be explosive. If you read some research by Digby Sale, for example, the neurologic system, your brain, which is your central nervous system and your spine, has peripheral nerves that go to your arms and your legs. 
the intent to tell yourself, I want to be explosive is going to be as important, if not more important than the actual movement or execution itself. And so the combination of the neuromuscular system coming together is of the utmost importance. So with the weighted balls, they usually are certain amount and then you buy them. And now we're going to do this program, but it just repeats over and over again. And it never really changes, whether it's the mass of the ball or the repetitions to my knowledge anyway. And if it does, then that's a really good thing because you do need to progress things. You need to have some highs and lows in there as you are training the individual uh, to the point about the um, body, the lower body, upper body. One of the things I think is important for the athlete or the parent, or even the, the athlete to know Look at the ratio. To, this was to Ryan's point earlier about having absolute strength versus the power component. Take your one rep max squat, bench, row, whatever it is, and divide it by your body mass. Divide it by your lean body mass if you know body composition. And all of a sudden, you'll know pound for pound how strong you are. If you are strong enough, to Ryan's point, then the power training is really where you need to go. If you're a weaker individual and you don't have enough of that relative strength, then you need to continue to build on that strength building process, which I call a max strength program that transitions to a power program. And now all of a sudden that player should get stronger, stronger athlete than who transitions to moving things faster. Hopefully then we'll be able to be more powerful in whatever they're doing. So I think those are really important points to make uh, about this. And then I'll go a little bit more back to the weighted ball stuff. Dr. Um, Mike Marshall pitched for the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1974 and 75 and had the most innings out of anybody in Major League Baseball. He got his PhD, I believe, from Michigan State, and I believe it was in biomechanics. And if I'm not mistaken, he still has online a free 36-chapter book on the mechanics of throwing. Now, he teaches the different types of throwing mechanics because he's always conscientious about the shoulder and the elbow. But Dr. Marshall has, or has, and I think he still probably does, weighted ankle weights around their wrist and doing ballistic movements. And then they would throw shot puts. I don't know if, you're, if your audience is aware of that. And I was at Texas Lutheran long ago in 1992 through 96. And St. Mary's University, which was in San Antonio, Texas, had a pitching coach named Char uh, Mike or Charles um, Maley, I believe. And I, forgive me if I get the name wrong. But I remember listening to this bang, bang, bang. And I was like, what the heck are they doing in the bullpen? Well, they were mm -hmm. throwing shot puts against the aluminum siding of the actual building that they had for their bullpen area. And it was oh just God. explosively going into the wall. And so I was really interested in finding out more about that. So I actually called Dr. Marshall up. He lives in Florida. He still trains pitchers, uh, teaches a screwball and different mechanics. And guys inevitably do not have the velocity that we have today because of the mechanics to change the throwing pattern to offset stresses on the shoulder and the elbow. But my point is that he was doing things that were ballistic in nature to get the, the, the shoulder stronger so that when you hold a five ounce baseball, you can endure the inning by inning pitch, the inning by inning game, the, the game after game, the season after season, so that now you have some longevity and you're protecting your shoulder. And now if you get this area strong, really strong, then maybe all of a sudden now throwing that ball isn't that difficult or that challenging or that overwhelming. And if we'd use bands that are the same resistance and we don't ever increase the resistance of the bands for our rotator cuff exercises, 
I don't think that's a wise choice either. You're just doing the same thing over and over again and trying or the to the same dumbbell or the same dumbbell, any resistance that stays the same and you keep doing the same program over and over again, your body's going to become accustomed to it. And it, add, it doesn't add anything to your program other than what I would say is a maintenance program. If you want a maintenance program, I think that's fine. But if you really want to try to build strength and you've got to gradually progress it. And if you want power, you've got to move it quickly. And so there's times when you can go bands that go heavier and heavier, and there can go bands that are lighter and faster. And having an idea about how you change it as the time of your training changes from off season to preseason to in season, I think is something that's really important to know. And oftentimes the average person is just relying on somebody out there to package it and put it all together. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, here's this magic program that's going to work for everyone. Well, again, to Jordan's point, that's not necessarily the case. One program doesn't fit all. And if you can make it more individualized for the pitcher or the player, then that's actually going to make them, I believe, progress more quickly because it actually addresses their specific needs. So testing, I think testing is really important for athletes and, and not everybody has the time to do it. Not everybody has the equipment to do it, but there are simple, what we call field tests, like a, just a vertical jump compared to the force plates. Force plates cost a lot of money. I mean, we just priced some force plates out to uh, look at a force plates that are embedded into a mound. And the, the value is um, higher than uh, most automobiles would cost you. So, you know, 80,000 plus dollars for three force plates in a mound, which I would really love to have, but I've got to find the, you know, the dollars to have it in our lab because it would allow us to do things that we've never done before. But by the same token, if we know how high they jump, if we know how far they jump in the uh, uh, sagittal plane going forward in a horizontal standing long jump, or maybe this lateral medial jump that there's been some research since, since 2012 that might indicate whether they're powerful going in this frontal plane. If, and then I've also done a medicine ball, an overhead med ball throw that correlated to their pitching velocity. Well, so now I don't need all this expensive stuff per se, if I'm a family or a high school coach or even a smaller university that doesn't have those funds, there are some tests that will still tell you who is strong, who is powerful, and then how does that relate to how they might throw the baseball or swing the baseball bat, for example? Good, good, bad, or indifferent. One of the things I used to do when I was, you know, in the process of recruiting and, you know, we would get a lot of walk-ons where I was at. And my main litmus test is we'd have these big walk-on camps and we'd have these guys around is I want to know how far can a guy jump? How fast can you run a 40 and a 60? So that's kind of my linear and then my explosive, my springy calculator. And then also what can they do off their knees throwing a baseball? Cause I want to know kind of what can they get from, you know, a frontal sagittal and a transverse. And then I would have them, you know, throw their live BPs then I'd kind of see where are they at on their velocity. And then I'd start kind of checking off people going, I don't want to put a fall into this guy. I don't want to put the fall into this guy. He might be interesting in a year or two down the road. And then I would just start taking the guys and going, okay, you know, now that I've kind of seen it, this is who I want to keep the rest of you guys. Thanks for coming out based on those physical measures, because I would have a, at least I know there was the ingredients in the pot that maybe we can make something out of that. But if the ingredients weren't already there, I don't, I don't want to put my time and my effort into that as a recruiter. If that makes sense. Um, do you think that's a good way to go about looking at it just in a general sense? Or what could you add into that? Do you think with minimal tools? No, I think it's a really good way of looking at it because 
inevitably you don't know enough about these athletes to know what their history is and what they've done, whether it was high school or junior college or wherever they came from. So you don't know that. So you have a very short period of time to evaluate. And I think you have to select what you think are the most important tests that will give you the information that you want. So if they're again, not strong and powerful, then maybe they won't be able to do the things that you really want them to do. You know, when you think about someone like Chris Sale, for example, someone might say, well, he may not be very strong. And I have no idea how strong he is, but I said, he certainly can do something really well besides yeah. throwing that baseball really hard. And I would imagine if you tested him on certain tests, I bet you he would do pretty well on, on some of them. And I don't know what those would be, but he's got something that allows him to throw that ball really hard with the body type that he has. So height and weight certainly could be something that you could also add to that. If you have the ability to know body composition, it might be nice to know that because that can give you the ability to do this relative body composition where you look at what is their fat mass, what is their lean muscle mass. And you can do that with skin fold calipers. Uh, and, and you could measure their, for men, you could measure their chest, their ab and their thigh. And you don't even have to calculate it. There's actually tables that you can find on the internet that if you measure those three sites and you add them up, it'll estimate what your percent body fat is. And then you could take that value and then subtract it from the amount of body weight they have. And then you can determine their lean body mass. And now all of a sudden you have that, I think, fairly easy to get. And there's, again, books, there's videos, there's all types of information that's out there that could allow them to measure that. Uh, I most recently, because of some handball research, have been measuring joint segment lengths. So from the acromion process to the elbow, from the elbow to the wrist, from the wrist to the longest finger, and then measuring the, the digits. Because now that we're getting into this Rapsodo data and some other equipment like TrackMan and others, we're looking at spin rates of, of balls. So now does a grip strength, does a pin strength with an index finger, a middle finger, or combined fingers, does that relate to the spin rate that they're putting maybe on their breaking ball, for example, or any other pitch? Does the length of their fingers, the length of their arm segments, do these things relate to how fast someone might throw a ball? And the team handball research that comes out of Europe does indicate that those who throw the, that handball faster have different uh, body types than others. And so you might think about that. Well, what do they draft in Major League Baseball? Probably 6'3 and above because longer levers might, if they use it sequentially in the right way, probably has the ability to throw that ball harder than maybe some others do. The bigger body generally endures a longer season, whether that's high school, college, or pro, it's all relative, right? So in college baseball, it might be 56 regular games. In high school, it might be 40 or something of that nature. In minor league baseball, 145. In pro baseball, 162. And then you had all your playoffs and things of that nature. Besides spring training, folks, don't ever forget about that. Because now you have all these days yeah. of throwing that just accumulate. So why does major league baseball like bigger bodies? They happen to – they. They resist the ability to fatigue and they have the ability to continue to play and their whatever their position is or whether they're a pitcher. And in general, you don't see a lot of 5'10 players. You don't see a lot of Jose Altuve. So although he's, I mean, the home run he hit last night was what, 460 yeah. feet? And the guy's 5'6". <laughs> he does something special. And not, not a lot of 5'6 individuals can hit like him. Mm -hmm. But he's, he's an exception, right? And, but you also don't see a whole lot of guys like Aaron Judge either. So you don't have, see a lot of six, eight position players because they're probably playing in the NBA or the NFL. So, you know, body types, I think, are important to add to what you're yeah. saying. What other things can you measure? I think those would be something very simple to measure. And, and then, obviously, uh, armcare.com is 
is protesting and assessing players yeah. and you know absolutely so. so to that point let me say that we've been doing testing with the biodex and a biodex is a very expensive isokinetic device and isokinetic means that you actually the machine dictates how fast the athlete is moving so there's a slow speed that's for strength moderate and then high speeds for power well that piece of equipment is sixty thousand dollars or so clinical hospitals might have that pt clinics might have that or some universities might have it but for the most part everybody else doesn't because they can't afford it because you can only get one athlete on it at a time so what we have now done with the arm care unit is we're using the arm care unit to measure internal rotation in this static position turn that device around do the external rotation in that static position isometric and then the scaption well we measured internal external rotation with the baseball athlete on the biodex i haven't run the stats yet we have done a diagonal pattern flexion extension of the shoulder well that mimics this position of scaption so there's a possibility then that the values from the arm care unit might relate to the information that we get from a biodex so to save money if it seems to be relative to it and gives us some relationships then buy something that's less expensive but and also easier to use because for one arm it might take three to four minutes and then you do the other arm it could take three to four so in eight minutes or so you can get both arms done and then they might throw their bullpen or their game or whatever they're doing and they can come back and do their post assessment well the biodex is in a lab and it'll take at least 15 minutes, at least 15 minutes to set them up and do their movement just for one arm. Then you want to do, if you want to do their other arm to see if they're symmetrical or not, or to compare potentially their injured side to a non-injured side, then it's going to take double the time. So from a time perspective, efficiency, ease of use, low cost, you know, I, I would recommend it. I think it's a really nice way to assess the athlete. And if they're doing it properly, you will have consistent numbers. And then if you look at the values, you'll know if somebody is fatigued or tired, or if they have an issue post-pitching. Uh, right now, we've just used it for the fall. So in the fall, they're not throwing any more than 45 pitches. So I don't ever suspect that they're going to truly get fatigued. However, sometimes they do because of all the volume of all the other things that they're doing throughout the week. And one of the things that we often don't assess is how does the volume of all these other things impact they're throwing. They might not be college athletes, might not be getting enough sleep. They may not be eating. They might be up all night studying. Uh, they've got a weight training in the morning, early in the morning, three days a week at 5.30 in the morning. Well, all these things as they accumulate could cause an athlete to get overtrained and some of them become sick. I mean, we actually had one pitcher this year who was a dual position player, was playing center field, was throwing bullpens, was doing conditioning for both, and also doing the resistance training and all the practices. Well, he ended up getting sick. I just think his immune system was down because he was overtrained and with all the things, school, life transitioning, all those things became accumulative. And if we can somehow assess that, then maybe we can do a job like, hey, maybe if you still want to do two positions, let's not do the conditioning for the position because he's got to do the conditioning for the pitcher. Or maybe because of doing the practice with outfield and then the, the practice for pitching maybe he doesn't need to do any conditioning at all and that's where the coach sometimes is like in their head like no they got a condition well sometimes more is less and less is more so we have to be able to have some way of monitoring that and if you have an objective way that gives you numbers 
to me, numbers don't lie. Numbers tell you whether it is or it isn't. And if they gave their best effort, then you have a pretty good idea. Because on the flip side of it, if athletes are really smart, they could intentionally do what? Not pushing as hard into the wall and say, hey, I'm tired and I need a day off. Well, they actually probably do. They're just trying to tell you, hey, man, would you please consider this? Because it'd be really great if I could have a day off or maybe two days off. And then we actually did with that particular athlete. We did. We talked to the position coach, the pitching coach. We had a meeting about it. And actually, those things were all modified. So to me, that gave us the ability to help that young person so that he could continue to play because he was transitioning from another school and trying to find a position. And I think that was a wise way of using that information. And then once we all understood what the information meant, which took a while, once we understand, now we're all using it better. Athletic trainer, pitching coach strength person, exercise science person, and then the people that are working with us all are trying to understand what the numbers mean. And now all of a sudden we can talk the same language. And man, that's really nice when you can communicate to one another and everyone understands what the variables are. Yeah, I, w- I was just going to say uh, earlier that um, that's one of the things that I noticed really effective uh, performance and, um, you know, helping your players happens from this collaboration. That's the one thing I'm really excited about the tool is that it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're in the medical side or you're the head coach or you're the pitching coach or the strength coach or the player, you know, people can see this data and really understand what it means. And we we're putting out a lot of education about this because a lot of the themes that you've talked about relative strength, absolute strength, symmetry, you know, these things are inherent to our technology. And it's just going to help drive better training, but the communication making adjustments, you know, you really hit it on the head. And I think a lot of coaches need to get there is that you set a program, but you need to be dynamic in that program. You know, you you have to adjust to what the athlete's showing you from their neurological standpoint or their psychological standpoint. And I think that's going to be the beauty of it. And I'm so excited for the future with this type of data when people understand it, because everybody will know where their athletes at and they'll be able to have an understanding of when to adjust. So this is something that's novel, right? It's new. And the scientist or the coach in general, what's our first reaction? Skepticism. Or I don't know. Cause when you go to a conference, everyone has a booth and everybody's trying to tell you about their device and tell you why it's going to be beneficial. But if they don't have any evidence-based information to back it up, then it's just they're saying about what they believe is going to happen, right? So it's the hypothetical, or maybe this is their hypothesis, right? This is what we think is going to happen based on what we know from either biomechanics or physiology. Well, to me, the first question that anyone should be asking anybody at a booth is, do you have any research or data that backs up what you do? Because if it does, I'll be really happy to look at that because that means something to me. And was it objectively provided to you or you know, or was it on the other hand, you did your own research and then what would we might, we might be skeptical of that because if you do your own research, well, then you want to sell your product. So you're probably going to find the results you want. So you're going to tell everybody that it does it. So when you have a third party doing an objective research project with products or devices, I think that becomes very valuable. And to a little bit of, I'll say that at times from my uh, bat velocity type of research, Earlier in my career, I kind of felt like I was a consumer reports of bat velocity devices because, hey, if you're if we don't know that your device works, you could send it over to 
Szymanski, and maybe he'll do a research project and he'll let us know whether it works or not. And I won't mention any names of a company, but we actually did two different research projects with a product and neither one of those research studies demonstrated that their product was any more beneficial than swinging a regular baseball or softball bat by itself for high school athletes. Well, then they weren't happy with the results because we didn't find what they thought theoretically mm -hmm. should happen. And I said, I told you before we did the research study, if it absolutely shows improvements, we'll be happy to scream from the rooftops how wonderful the product is. But you must also be prepared for it to not do anything, even though you think it should do something. And if that's the case, as a researcher, I'm still going to try to publish that data because I think it's valuable for people to understand what does or doesn't work. And so going back to the weighted ball program, Dr. Coop Durin has done the research on weighted balls that showed balls that were 20% heavier or lighter. So that's a five ounce ball. You go five and a quarter, five and a half, five and three quarters, six ounces. Six ounces is 20% heavier. Then you go backwards four and three quarters, four and a half, four and a quarter to four ounces. Again, that's 20 ounces or 20% less than a five ounce baseball. Those are the research studies that have demonstrated increasing throwing velocity for high school and college athletes where they had a very large sample size. The programs today, however, if a little bit is good, more has got to be better. Well, that's not necessarily true because you, if you have a seven ounce ball, a 14 ounce ball, a 21 ounce ball or more, then think of how much more that is than a five ounce ball. And then will that be beneficial or potentially negatively impact the shoulder or the elbow? Now, I don't have the answer for that at this point in time, but I just think we should be cautious because if we do too much, again, for youth athletes or younger kids that are you know, under 18 years of age who aren't physically mature, who may not have the strength, well, then they may not be able to throw those balls safely. And if that's the case, could we potentially be doing more harm than good? Nobody's really looked at it to my knowledge. I mean, I think Dr. Rafael Escamilla did something on weighted balls recently, <coughs> but I don't remember what the results were off the top of my head. I'm sorry, but we don't have enough information about it. So I think we need more research. So it'd be great if other people, researchers, if they're watching this or graduate students to think about doing controlled research with the weighted ball programs to see what the impact is. And then to Jordan's point, does it have an immediate impact, but what is the long-term effect of it? Because if we continue to do it, I don't see people throwing harder and harder and harder by continuing to do it, but maybe it's just a maintenance program because as I said earlier, it doesn't generally, to my knowledge, they don't progress. Here's the program, here's the balls, here's the exercises to do, go ahead and do them. And again, if it, if it doesn't change, it doesn't progress some way or what happened, what do we throw for a high school or a college or pro? What are the masses of the balls that might be necessary for these individuals who are more physically mature? Right. I think it'd be really interesting to look at those things. But here's the other challenging thing for everyone who doesn't know this. To do a research study with baseball players only happens in the offseason because no coach in the world will let you have their baseball athletes during the baseball season because they must win games. And if what you do potentially is going to cause some negative side effect and they lose, you will absolutely be told goodbye. See you later. We're not doing this any longer. And I'm being very nice about how I say that because it'd be a very different conversation. That'd be quite colorful. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to get a group of high school, I mean, 50 plus athletes. It's not easy to get that. At a college, you don't have 50 plus athletes. And I'll also say at the division one level, the hitting coach or the pitching coach, if they 
ask me, which of these programs do you think would be most beneficial? They'll say, put my best players in that. I can't do that. It must be randomly assigned. Well, I don't want to be in the study. Or, hey, coach, you can't take a thousand swings today because I have to control the amount of swings they take because that could impact their bat velocity. Well, I'm not going to do that, the coach will say. I need them to hit the way I want them to hit, which is understandable if that's what they want. My point of this story is it is really challenging to control the variables that allow you to say this caused this. And it's not easy. And then the other thing, how many young people today not only have high school or college coaches, but they have their pitching coach, they have their hitting coach, they go get lessons. That also is more volume of throwing or changing the mechanics of how they throw. So did you get better because you changed your mechanics? Did you get better because you actually physically grew and got longer, you know, your bone segments. And so now your levers became longer. All these things become the why potentially someone got better that may not necessarily be, we'll say the weighted bat program or the weighted ball program, because we didn't truly have control of those other variables. And that's, what's really challenging about research. So when someone tells me they do research, I'm a researcher, that means they have to write a IRB, an institutional review board, submit it to a university, and then you have very strict guidelines. Whereas the average person will say, I went to the internet and I looked things up. So that was research. That's not the same vocabulary. It's really a different vocabulary. Yeah. Hey, I want to back up just a little bit and ask basically a dumb question because I've never been part of a, a college baseball program, but you're a department head, you're a professor, you're dealing with research, but you're also dealing day to day with these players. Is that common or is that something that's unique to Louisiana Tech? And is there an advantage there that you see? Uh, it is not common by any stretch of the imagination. And I, I don't know if this is a correct response or not, but I don't know if anybody's doing this. I don't know any department chair in America that's a, also the director of baseball performance. I, I, I suspect that there's no one. I might be the only person in America doing that. Now, most department chairs have no interest in doing that either, though, I would say, because they have to direct their department. Right. For me, though, you know, I was a college baseball player. I wanted to be a professional athlete. I coached at the Division I level as a baseball coach. I did strength and conditioning. So I always was looking for answers, right? So I tell students and I tell people this, and I know someone might have already heard me say this, but I consider myself the Indiana Jones of baseball. And what do I mean by that? Indiana Jones is looking for the holy grail of life, right? You so, know the movie reference, Ryan? Yeah. I do know that. Okay. <laughs> what, is, what is the truth? That's what I'm really looking for. What are some right. truths? And what really is going to help a baseball player get better or not? And so in order to do this, it takes a lot of time. And if someone is not interested in doing the seven days a week, 12 to more hours a day, then absolutely it's, it's going to be a rare person that might want to do that. And it, it's demanding of your time. But I will also say my wife is my right-hand person. My wife does all the research with me and helps me with anything I do. She also helps with strength and conditioning. She's an instructor in our department. She has her CSCS. She was a strength coach at Auburn when she was a graduate student. So she and I are very similar from that uh, practical side of doing things. But it also allows us as a, a team, a husband and wife, to work together. And I don't know many husband and wives that want to work together and who are with each other seven days a week, all day long, whether it's at home or at school. And I also have two boys, one's a senior in high school, one's a junior in high school, and guess what, they play baseball. So this is a family affair. So we 
and here's the other thing when I'm, I teach, I department chair, I train tech baseball players. And then after I do that, I train my kids. So right. my days are 15 to 18 hour days. And I sleep about five to five to seven hours a day. That's what and I try to and then you wrote a book, right? Yeah. 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 That was challenging. That was, that took a lot of time. That took a year and a half and uh, worked with some really good people, high school, college, and professional strength coaches. And it was really, I enjoyed it a lot because in most of my career, I was really narrowly focused and it was things that I was doing in the, and I didn't have, I didn't reach out to people the way I've reached out most recently because I, I know I can't do all this stuff on my own. So I need to talk to more people and how do I make it better? Well, I got to listen to some other people because they might have some really good ideas. And in the book, I mean, the way I strength train our players here before writing the book was a little bit different than how I train them today because some of these other strength coaches introduced or recommended some of the exercises that maybe either I haven't done in a while or I just never did before. And I was like, this actually makes really good sense because again, I'm thinking about a complete program that works front side, backside, multiple planes. And here are some other exercises that I can do. What I'm gonna say is a relatively modest weight room for collegiate athletics. Right. We don't have like an SEC or ACC type of weight room here. It's a very uh, traditional basic type of weight room that has what we need to train the athletes here. So how do you become creative and then how do you make it all work? And again, the book, um, working with Dr. Gene Coleman, who was the strength coach for the Houston, actually, I take that back. I'm not the only guy. Dr. Gene Coleman was a department chair at the University of Houston Clear Lake, and he was the head strength coach of the Houston Astros for, I think, 20 years. Wow. So he, would, he did it at a level that I didn't do it. And, and I don't know all of the story about how he did it, but I believe a lot of things were online. So that made it much more uh, easy to probably manage. So he did it at a degree that I, I never did it. So Dr. Coleman really was one of the, I'll say the godfathers of strength and conditioning in baseball in the, in the mid 1970s. And you can, in the book, there's actually an, an introduction that talks about this in the early 19, I'm sorry, the mid 1970s, he was working with the NASA space program in Houston and the Houston Astros came to him and asked if he'd be interested in training baseball players and not astronauts. Uh, Dr. Coleman, actually, I, I have his too. Someone sent me the original book, his training of, of astronauts. I it's a small book, wow. hardcover book uh, done in the mid 70s, I think it was or so on training astronauts. But anyway, my point is that he was training Nolan Ryan, for example, when Ryan was traded to the Astros and they used to have to do it in hiding and they used Nautilus machines at the time and they would do it when nobody was around because everyone thought in the 70s or even before that for sure that resistance training was going to make you big and bulky and muscle bound and then you wouldn't be able to perform the game very well especially as a pitcher well Nolan Ryan really dispelled all of that and Nolan Ryan with Dr. Coleman really opened up the doors for strength and conditioning for the baseball world specifically the professional baseball world and then ultimately that trickles down to colleges and high school and now we have athletes that are doing it all the time and sometimes they're doing it too much but for sure it opened the doors up for this these careers in these areas and uh, I, I have no, I, I've never had a serious conversation with Dr. Coleman about how much time it took for him to do what he did, but it must've been an immense amount of time to be a department chair and the major league baseball strength and conditioning person. I don't know, probably had to spend more time than, than what I'm spending with the guys that we're doing with. So uh, he'd be a great person to communicate with, to talk about, you know, the history of the game and strength and conditioning. And then, you know, does it benefit athletes? I can tell you any conversation I've had with Dr. Coleman, if it doesn't benefit the baseball player, 
he's not doing it. So there's a lot of bells and whistles that are out there that could be what I call the superfluous buns, which is another Steve Martin movie, you know, Father of the Bride. So if I don't need these buns, because I only have, I have eight hot dogs in a package, but I got 12 buns, I'm going to get rid of these four buns because I don't need them. It's a waste of my money. So just give me what I need to train these athletes most effectively so they can functionally play the game. And again, that's really the, the premise of the book that we co-edited and then also uh, did some articles, I'm sorry, chapters ourselves with the other uh, uh, authors. That's what it's really about. How do you train these individuals at the high school, college, and pro level and, and make it different? Because in all the books I've read for most of the stuff, the book actually truly, if, you, if, if someone purchases the book, the high school, the college, and the pro programs, they are different. And I think that's really nice because it's not the same thing for all three levels of athlete. And that, that's the things I really like, like talking with, you know, it's, uh, it's always one of those things. If you knew what, you know, now, 10 years ago, everything would always be better. And I've told, and you know, ever since Ryan introduced us, I've told him, man, if I, the way that I coach now is way different than when I first got into coaching. And I started coaching at the high school level and then, you know, working in the private industry, then went into college and then did some consulting with pro ball and then went in full time to pro ball. And my viewpoint has changed a lot, not just on strength and conditioning, not just on running, not just on throwing mechanics, not just on pitch development, but on everything. Right. And that's where, you know, you, you mentioned no coach is going to give you those guys to, to train in season and go, Hey, take these 10 guys and do whatever you want. And that's where I was telling around, man, if, if I had, if I had David, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when I was coaching in college baseball, however long ago it was, we would just, we would keep red shirts like eight, 10, 12 red shirts. We're going, we're just going to do some weird stuff and we're going to do whatever we can. We're going to see what happens. And then we'll release that into gen pop next year. And those guys, some of them got better. Some of them got worse. You know, it's like, Oh, maybe we don't do this one in the future, but man, we would have some fun with uh, the athletes. It is that we had, and I probably would have cut my, my learning curve on a lot of things by 50% because my analytical brain is probably about 5% of what you and Ryan's analytical brain is. Cause I use words like springy and you guys use actual like dictionary words. <laughs> um, so it would cut down that learning curve a ton and it would just be fantastic to, to be able to see what kind of awesome random stuff we could find out in a, in an amount of time, just by looking at things new, which baseball doesn't always want to do. Yeah. And man, I remember, you know, I, I, you mentioned Coop Duran. I had a chance to meet Coop Duran because, you know, my mentor, Tom House, did a lot of that original way to ball studies with Coop Duran. Um, and that's how, you know, I got to know those guys and learning about the six, five and the four ounce and why those were the, the original balls that him and Coop would put on thrown from the knees, thrown from a rocker, thrown from a run and gun. And man, Coop looks at the game in a completely unique way. Tom looks at it in a complete unique way. So I was lucky to have those guys as mentors. Coop probably doesn't even remember who I am, but I pinned him down in a corner and was hounding him with questions at, you know, USC Dato field for way too long, but you know, we need more of that in baseball to leave no stone unturned to dig in, see what we hit. Sometimes you're going to actually hit accidentally hit a ground wire and realize something doesn't work, but you don't know unless you start digging when it comes down to it. And that's what I really appreciate about having someone like you on the show. Thank you very much. And one of the things you mentioned was being your own coach. So I often, tell people if I really want to do all the things that I want to do, then I should be a head coach because then I would do the things that I, I, 
I only have to answer to myself. I don't have to ask permission or to demonstrate why this might be effective because at times it can be challenging. But you might also have some coaches that are very open-minded. Tell me what it is that you want to do and why. Maybe if you provide me with some information, I'd love to read it. If it gets too in the, much in the science side, oftentimes that may not be information that they understand. So you have to simplify it. And I think that's important. So for my role, and probably Ryan would say the same thing about his role, it's like Denzel Washington in Philadelphia. Explain it to me like I'm a third grader, right? So tell me that science stuff, speak that language, but then demonstrate that you can actually explain it to me in a very simplistic way so that the player, myself, or a parent or whomever else is listening that isn't familiar with kinesiology vocabulary understands it. And to me, that's the beauty of it. If you can take the complex stuff and make it simple and then work with somebody and then be comfortable and confident with who you are, because then all of a sudden you're more relaxed and you can have this discussion with people. And now that I'm older, I don't feel like I have to prove things to people, maybe like I used to when I was younger. So I'm usually, okay, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. That's fine. I'm fine with it. I'm just telling you, I think this might be beneficial. Here's why I would recommend it. You're the person who's in charge of this particular area right now. If you'd like to do it, I'll be happy. <coughs> if you're not comfortable, we won't do it. So I just want them to feel as though everyone has an advantage and everyone is winning in the situation, right? So I always say if it's a win-win for everybody, then usually great things can happen. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have said it better. Dr. David Szymanski, thank you. Uh, I think this has been a great one. Uh, maybe we can do it again at some point. Uh, I will definitely put in the show notes links to all the stuff we've talked about here, including your book. And, uh, you know, if, if you've liked this one, please subscribe if you haven't already and uh, hit that like button. If you've got any questions, uh, you know, reach out to us either on armcare.com or wherever we, we'd, we'll, we'd love to answer those. And uh, thanks again. And uh, until next time, guys. Hey, take care. hey, Bart, could you also put a link to the three amigos in the show notes? I will Ryan's put, going on vacation. Yes. He hasn't seen it. He's got nothing but time. <laughs> Yeah, a few movie ones will go in the bottom as well. No problem. All right, guys. Take care. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.